the prime obligation of every human being is to speak out against injustice. We are our brother's keeper. You're listening to The Keeper, brought to you by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. I'm Katrina Lantos-Sweat. In July of 1938, representatives of 32 nations were summoned to Evian, France at the call of President Franklin Roosevelt to try and find a solution to the Jewish refugee problem, a crisis precipitated by the increasingly draconian and violent persecution of Jews in Germany and Austria. The conference, which began with high hopes and high-minded rhetoric, was to end in abject failure. The assembled nations refused to open their hearts and their shores to the persecuted Jews of Europe, and their abdication of moral responsibility was taken by Hitler as a green light to move forward with his genocidal final solution. In July of this year, a symposium was convened in the same Hotel Royale where the 1938 gathering was held. The purpose of this event was to consider the lessons and warnings of the Evian Conference on its 80th anniversary. Dr. Katrina Lantos-Sweat, president of the Lantos Foundation and host of our podcast, was invited to give the keynote address for the symposium. Her insights and analysis are informed not only by her years of leadership and activism within the human rights community, but also by the lessons she learned as the daughter of Hungarian Holocaust survivors. We are happy to share Dr. Lantos Sweat's remarks with you today. I'm pleased at this point to introduce our first speaker, very fitting that I do, Dr. Katrina Lantos Sweat. Thank you for all your organizations done to support this cause from the beginning. Well, first let me say that it is a great pleasure and an honor to be here with all of you. I want to start out before I share my remarks by paying tribute to our friend, Hugh Daver. We met less than a year ago at a Kristallnacht commemoration in the small town of Keene, New Hampshire. And I was there with my husband, Ambassador Sweat, and with my mother, who is herself a Holocaust survivor. And my most vivid recollection was that there was this guy who clearly was very passionate about this cause, but little did I know or imagine how closely we would have the opportunity to work together. Hugh is, of course, not only the chairman and founder of Sosua 75, but he had a vision, and I would say even more than a vision, he had this urgent prompting that the anniversary of this milestone in history, this very sad milestone that took place here in Evian, could not, indeed it must not, pass by without proper and necessary reflection on the costs paid and the lessons learned from the tragic failures of the Evian Conference of 1938. And he really has worked tirelessly to bring this symposium to life, and certainly the Lantos Foundation was very excited to play a a small part in helping him to do so. So please join me in giving Hugh a very well-deserved round of applause. Now, our purpose in gathering here is, as the program suggests, to educate and to remember, but also, very importantly, to respond to the call to ensure that the excruciating and deadly outcome of Evian be guarded against in the future. And as I shall discuss shortly, the future is, in some senses, 
already upon us. My role tonight is to share a little of my own family's Holocaust story. And I hope that together, once I've done that, we can consider some of the lessons and warnings of Evian for our time. As some of you may know, I am the daughter of Hungarian Holocaust survivors. And my father, the late Congressman Tom Lantos, went on to become the only survivor of the Holocaust ever elected to serve in the United States Congress. And this is a distinction that he will keep forever because as we know, that generation is sadly beginning to pass from the scene. And with their departure, the urgent awareness of the importance of remembering the lessons of the Holocaust is also fading. Indeed, a survey that was released in April of this year found shockingly high percentages of Americans lack the most basic knowledge of the Holocaust. And indeed, 66% of millennials could not say what Auschwitz was. That is a sobering, sobering survey. And it underscores why events like this are so important and what we will do after this event. My father, during his nearly three decades in Congress, rose to become chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. But more importantly to me, he was the founder of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus and one of our nation's most forceful and eloquent advocates for human rights. Our family was deeply gratified when following my father's passing, his congressional colleagues honored him by reestablishing the Human Rights Caucus as the Tom Lantos Commission on Human Rights which really is the US Congress's premier body focused on advancing universal human rights. Now, as I said, my father was a powerful and forceful advocate, and there can be little doubt that his passion for upholding the dignity and rights of all people stemmed in part from the searing experiences of his youth. But I'm also convinced that his valiance in defending human rights sprang from a quality of moral strength and determination, that will to do the right thing, even, especially, when it is dangerous to do so. Two qualities that were so absent in the governments represented at the Evian conference. I'd like to share a story from my father's life that I think illustrates this. My dad was a young Jewish teenager in 1944 when the Germans occupied his native Hungary, an ally that Berlin feared was on the verge of switching allegiances. The German occupation began the true nightmare for the Jews of Hungary, and ultimately nearly 500,000 Hungarian Jews lost their lives during the horrors of that time. My father, like thousands of other Jewish boys, was rounded up initially and sent to a slave labor camp outside of Budapest, where he was conscripted into forced labor under brutal conditions. He rarely spoke of this time, but many years later, his closest companion who survived the slave battalion as well, shared this story from those very dark days. The Hungarian commander of my father's labor group decided to burnish his reputation by compelling all the Jewish boys in his barracks to be baptized. They were frightened. They were essentially helpless and completely at his mercy. So they all complied, all except for two, my father and his friend, Nori Kerenyi. 
They were very badly beaten for their refusal, and yet they did not comply. Now, from what I know of my father back then, he was not an especially religious teenager. Although in the few letters that survived from that time, he did write about his belief in God, a belief that would, over time, give way to a more skeptical agnosticism. So I don't think it was so much his deep religiosity that made him refuse to be baptized against his will, as it was his recognition that his inherent and inalienable right, if you will, to possess his own soul was somehow at stake, and he was prepared to pay a high price to defend it. Being willing to pay a high price to defend one's own personal integrity, to defend innocent victims, to defend human dignity, to defend the reputation and honor of humanity, this willingness and courage was shockingly absent at the Evian Conference in 1938. Those of his here understand the basic outline of what transpired at Evian. In response to the increasing number of Jewish refugees fleeing, intensifying, and vicious persecution in Nazi Germany and beyond, President Roosevelt called for an international conference to seek a solution, really, to the Jewish refugee problem. Of course, there was an obvious, simple, perhaps not easy, but simple solution. And that was for the 32 nations represented at Evian to open their doors with compassion and humanity to these desperate people. As we all know, that did not happen. Only the tiny Dominican Republic, led ironically by the dictator Trujillo, stepped up with a pledge to offer 100,000 visas to Jewish refugees. In the end, only 800 Jews were able to seek refuge in the community of Sosua in the Dominican Republic. But of all the powerful and civilized nations represented at Evian, not one was willing to in any meaningful way match their eloquent protestations of sympathy for the persecuted Jews with any actual help to those who were facing the most desperate and deadly of dangers. The delegates could not even bring themselves to issue a joint statement of condemnation of Germany's abhorrent Nuremberg laws. Yes, the Evian Conference was a failure, but it was much worse than a failure. The utter moral hypocrisy of the United States and other participating countries became a dark tool in the hands of the Nazis. It is no coincidence, I think, that Kristallnacht, the beginning of the end for the Jews, occurred just a few months after the debacle at Evian. Before the conference, Hitler had openly mocked the world's professed concern for the plight of Europe's Jews, saying, and I quote, I can only hope and expect that the other world, which has such deep sympathy for these criminals, by which of course he meant the Jews, will at least be generous enough to convert this sympathy into practical aid. We, on our part, are ready to put all these criminals at the disposal of these countries, for all I care, even on luxury ships." End quote. After the refusal of the conference countries to provide an escape route for Europe's Jews, they were trapped, and Hitler knew he had a green light to proceed with his final solution. Thus, the Evian Conference, to its everlasting shame, 
stands as an example not only of moral cowardice, but of the danger of appeasement. Now, I'm not speaking of military appeasement of the Germans, as exemplified by Neville Chamberlain's immortal declaration of peace for our time. No, this was appeasement of the bigotry and the fear and, yes, the selfishness of their own people, the Americans, the French, the British, the Australians, the Swedes, the Swiss, the Brazilians, the Irish, and many others. And it is understanding the consequences of this domestic appeasement that makes the lessons of the Evian Conference so relevant to our time. The great American writer Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. The world is now facing a refugee crisis on a scale not seen since the Second World War. It is estimated that over 65 million people have been displaced worldwide. Most of those refugees fleeing war, violence, persecution, and in some cases, extreme poverty, are being hosted in countries that neighbor their nation of origin. Jordan, Turkey, Pakistan, Lebanon, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda. These countries are hosting the majority of that 65 million. But a significant number of these refugees, especially Syrian refugees, have sought asylum and protection and a new life in Europe. And as Mark Twain observed, history, while not exactly repeating itself, seems to be rhyming a bit. Of course, there are big differences and very notable differences between 1938 and 2018. The majority of those seeking to enter Europe are coming from intermediary countries, such as Turkey, where they do face great difficulties and, in some cases, danger. But most do not face existential threats of annihilation, such as awaited the Jews of Europe. Another enormously important difference is that the world in which these refugees are fleeing has a strong and well-established rights regime that began with the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, followed by the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, and perhaps most relevant for our gathering today, the 1951 Refugee Convention, which defines who a refugee is, what rights and protections they are entitled to, and what responsibilities they have under international law. Finally, through the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and other international agencies, there are significant resources that exist to help provide for the housing and food and medical needs of those who have been forced to flee their countries. Don't get me wrong, these unfortunate souls face struggles and hardships on a daily basis, but still we must recognize how different their circumstances are from that of European Jewry, which faced genocide at the hands of the Nazis. So there are very big differences, and those differences are a marker of progress, of the way that the world did, in some measure, learn the tragic lessons of the Second World War. But I think we also need to turn our attention to the uncomfortable similarities between the arguments of the delegates here in 1938 and some of the arguments that today are fueling the rise of populist, nationalist, and anti-immigrant parties in countries from Hungary and Poland and Italy to powerful political voices in Great Britain, the United States, and elsewhere. 
One argument we hear is that these new immigrants are incapable of assimilating and that they will change ancient European cultures in dangerous ways. This too was claimed by those who opposed increasing quotas for Jewish immigrants from Europe. One writer said, quote, let us stop immigration completely for a while and give our present alien population an opportunity to become Americanized before they foreignize us. Of course, the countries in Europe that are welcoming refugees have the right to insist that those who seek to join their societies accept and embrace the underlying values of tolerance, equality, pluralism, and respect that are the hallmark of the new Europe, the Europe we know and love. But it is both wrong and it's wrong-headed to assume that because the current migrants come from different faith and culture traditions, that they too cannot become fully part of the fabric of European society. A second concern from the late 30s and 40s was the concern about economic costs and economic displacement. And those are again part of the discussion today. Such concerns also cannot be cavalierly dismissed because there are undeniable costs associated with accommodating immigrant populations. And speaking as one of the Americans here, I look back on our most recent presidential election and clearly there were many people who responded to a message that somehow suggested that those coming to our country were squeezing out the economic opportunity for native-born Americans. So these arguments cannot be dismissed and one makes a sort of an elitist and out-of-touch mistake if one does so. So those costs need to be acknowledged. They need to be dealt with. They need to be accounted for. But history has shown, and it's shown this pretty decisively, that immigrants who are successfully integrated into a new country end up strengthening economic growth. And there are countless examples, in America in particular, of immigrants who went on to create enormously successful enterprises and pioneer entire new fields of economic expansion that have employed millions of Americans. And if we had time, we could just go around the room and each of us could think of examples of businesses. And as I say, you know, sort of so much of the modern internet world we live in was brought to us, in the United States at least, by immigrants. So history has a pretty strong body of evidence that if you do it right, immigrants don't take an undue share of a shrinking pie. They do help expand the pie. Another fear that is often unfairly linked to refugees is the fear of crime. And in our day and age, of course, we tend to think of it as terrorism as well, because it is. Again, these worries cannot be dismissed out of hand, but they also are not new. In the late 1930s and 40s, there was great concern that Nazi spies and communist agitators would try to infiltrate the ranks of genuine refugees. My father used to say he loved to quote the great American statesman Adlai Stevenson who once said, solutions begin by telling the truth. And we have to tell the truth. Governments have to tell the truth, mayors, police commissioners, everybody has to tell the truth when things happen. And can't try to smooth it over or cover it over in hopes of avoiding social disruption. And we know there have been examples of individuals who have come to Europe masquerading as refugees who have engaged in violent acts of terror. And again, every country has both the right and the duty to carefully and thoroughly vet all those who seek to settle in their nation. 
Indeed, it is my personal belief that it was precisely the chaotic and initially uncontrolled and totally unvetted surge of migrants that the world witnessed in 2015 that gave rise to the current mood of suspicion and hostility that is posing such a grave challenge to the unity and future of Europe. But the need and the legitimate need to protect a society, to do the very detailed work of carefully vetting the legitimacy of those seeking to come here cannot and must not be used as an excuse to tar an entire community with a terrible accusation of either criminality or harboring evil intentions. Finally, in 1938 as now, there is that old, undesired, and evil companion that seems so hard to leave behind, and that was simple prejudice and bigotry. And whether it manifests as anti-Semitism, which I am sad to say is alive and well in our day, or whether it appears in societies as hatred of Muslims or hostility to those whose skin color or faith is different from our own, it is always wrong, in every way wrong. And we must each take it upon ourselves to fight this scourge. It can be uncomfortable and it can be disquieting to look back at the analogies and rhymes from 1938 to our day. But it is my hope that this discomfort will lead our societies to do the hard work of finding real workable solutions to these challenges. There are, of course, many complex causes contributing to today's massive refugee problem. In addition to the usual suspects of war, natural disaster, political oppression, and oppressive poverty, the borderless world of the internet, where people in incredibly remote and struggling parts of the globe can clearly see how the other half lives, has emboldened millions of new people to take great risks to try and secure a better life for themselves and their families. But whereas the world of the internet may indeed be borderless for much of humanity, the world of countries and nations and languages and political systems is still measured and bound by actual borders. And again, the current wave of nationalist, populist success in Europe and the United States should make it very clear to every one of us that anything approximating a world of wide open borders is simply not politically feasible anytime soon, if ever. At the same time, our hearts, our minds, and our consciences tell us that it is also not sustainable in the long run to shrug our shoulders at the vast inequities that exist across regions and hemispheres and expect that those suffering under exigent circumstances should somehow accept these disparities as the unavoidable result of a cosmic roll of the dice. They will not accept it, and neither should we. Solutions will not be easy, but I believe that both short and long-term solutions must begin with the conviction the simple conviction, the biblical conviction, if you will, that our fellow human beings, whether the European Jews of 1938 or the Syrian children of 2018, are indeed our brothers and sisters. And that we, every one of us in this room, have an inescapable duty to be our brothers and sisters keepers. William Shakespeare, that nearly bottomless font of amazingly quotable phrases, wrote, the past is prologue. As we gather on the 80th anniversary of the Evian Conference in a world awash in desperate people, Shakespeare's words can seem to have an ominous ring. But 
if we read just a little further, what the bard has to say next is profoundly optimistic. For after Shakespeare wrote that the past is prologue, he goes on to say, and I quote, what's to come in yours and my discharge. So what is to come is in yours and my discharge. We will decide how, with humanity and decency and justice, this challenge of our day will be met. The responsibility, my friends, has been rolled onto our shoulders, and I believe we will be equal to it. Thank you very much. This episode of The Keeper was produced and recorded by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. To support our work, and for more information on today's topic, visit us at www.lantosfoundation.org.